Welcome, welcome everybody to what we are currently calling the Feast or Famine podcast. I was chatting with Pride the other day, and I think we uh, we decided we might want to try just another podcast just to to talk about different things because we had a I think we had a pretty nice conversation yesterday, just kind of an ad hoc uh, recording, and it was really nice. I wanted to to test out everything, so. Uh, welcome, welcome, Pride. How are you doing tonight? Uh, good. Glad to be here. You know, happy to test something out, try something new, I guess. You know, been in the finance game for quite a number of years now. So excited to try, I guess, my hand at the content creation aspect of it and more of the voice sense, not just the written sense, but it should be interesting. Yes, I do have to say from the outset, you are the first person I've ever passed a, like a bare bones structure for a cast to and I came back and it had like quintupled in content. So I, I'm excited. <laughs> like this is, <laughs> this looks amazing. And I'm actually really looking forward to getting into it. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's, it's, there's always a lot to talk about in magic, I find. And so there's, I, I you know, plenty of topics to discuss especially with a new set that just dropped we got a new secret layer announced there's plenty of stuff going on in the mtg world and just yeah excited to talk about a bunch of different topics i guess starting with that we're going to go ahead and start off with our first topic here which is the snc set boosters and uh the list changes do you want to just take us away with that Sure. I mean, one of the big changes in the list that we saw for this set, like uh, that we haven't seen prior, is they've gone away with all the commons and uncommons that were just kind of like essentially ruining the the list slots. Like uh, you'd have things like Trusty Machete and Boros Champion, which were you know basically unplayable draft jank. It was kind of always a feel bad to open, you know, get your one in four list slot, open it up, and see basically just some unplayable nonsense. And so. I think it's great that they've gone ahead and removed all those and now basically kept it just to a tight sort of like desirable group of cards that players will be excited to open. And obviously the new universe is beyond kind of now we're seeing the Stranger Things cards, but this is where they're going to show up in the future and they're, they show up a lot. So to ensure that it's like if they are playable, that Magic players aren't kind of like caught trying to like acquire these and having to pay up certain amounts of money for them. Um, so there's been big changes essentially, and they've meant like really good things, I guess, for financially, because now that all the chaff is gone, they've really juiced up the value of, uh, particularly the set boosters. Um, because now you're just opening like staples like Vampiric Tutor, Sensei's Divining Top, you know, Anointed Procession, uh, just all these highly desirable cards that are really fun to open. And now that there's no more feel bads when you get your slot, it's, um, I think, a really good change to the list overall and also creates new financial opportunities for uh, Magic players. Fascinating to me because I know just uh, from my experience with the list, uh, and I know you're going to get into this more as, as we go on here, but. I've never felt that they actually produce enough of these cards to actually make like an impact on the price of the cards. But I guess if they're removing the chaff, I guess that means that there there's basically going to be more reprints of the the cards of value, right? Yeah, and part of that I think will create even still like I don't know what the actual value is, and I'm sure this would be something that you'd be more suited for to look at, say, the amount of like a new, like a Streets Nuka Pena Rare being added onto TCG Player versus, say, the amount of the quantity of, say, Vampiric Tutor from the list added onto TCG Player. 
I don't know what the fraction is going to be, one-tenth, maybe less. It's not even close to a reprint, even still, even with the new changes. But what we've seen so far is that the price of some of these cards have plummeted very precipitously. Like, Vampiric Cooter dropped from about 50 to 30 almost overnight. And wow. there really isn't the supply to kind of justify that kind of drop. And so I think players definitely going to want to keep their eyes on these because you're going to have opportunities to snag like big bricks of these like absolute EDH staples that have withstood the test of time always have and always will because people are assuming it's like hey this is a full reprint when it's like no these 200 copies really don't matter but their perception is they do and that's where kind of we can come in and make a lot of money just arbitraging these either from the EU, EU or even from a TCG player from places like the Gaming Co and just making a whole pile of money a couple months later once the prices have rebounded. Yeah, I, I've always found it really interesting just the, the concept of the list. I hate it because from an organization of sets, it's it's just so egregiously difficult because, you know, as the list changes, everything is going to be grouped into the list, even if it hasn't been on the list in two years. I think that ambiguity really arms uh, Watsi with with really just a tremendous weapon to reprint things. Like uh, I see you here, you you've got like the, the less desirable cards, the comma. You mentioned uh, Vamp Tutor, but I think uh, Sensei's Divining Top and uh, Anointed Procession will be on there as good opportunities to buy. But those those weaker one off uh, printings, right, are basically going to be a lot more vulnerable now, eh? Yeah, like like I specifically as a comma, it's like it depends. You got to look at it on kind of a scarcity versus power level scale, and obviously it's not binary. Cards aren't one or the other; they're always both. Mm -hmm. But Zakama was always more rare than powerful. Like three colors, nine mana, got to be Naya, probably a big mana deck. You know, ultimately there wasn't a huge. It's like there wasn't a huge demand for her to begin with, and so now with this, it's more. It's closer to reprint than before. Certainly, still nowhere close to real reprint. But I do think those kind of cards will stagnate a bit more. But again, this cards like Vampiric Tutor, Top, uh, Procession, these were never expensive because they were scarce. They're expensive because they were desirable, and they're no less desirable. And they're the supply added is very small, relatively speaking, and so. I think going forward, we'll try and highlight kind of good opportunities, even current ones, depending on how many more set boosters get opened. But just be mindful of the fact that this is not a reprint of Vampiric Tutor. It's not going to go down and stay down for any significant period of time. And there's plenty of money to be made by people who think this is basically getting a real reprint, which it isn't. Yeah, and, and it's, it is really, I, my personal opinion is it truly is that perception from the market where they see, oh, it's being reprinted and they rush out to sell it not realizing um you know i i think in my opinion if you're on the list it's not a real reprint but bringing it to people's attention introducing supply that we're unable to really measure um you know that whole uh, opaqueness it just gives it a tremendous amount of power to both bring down prices but also just kind of move them up and just it, it can cause havoc and really uh, controlled way. Hopefully, hopefully they're they're not drunk at the wheel, but we'll find out, I guess. Yeah. One nice thing about the list is because of the small supply. One added advantage to them is they tend to do well in buy lists because, especially like CK, uh, they'll always want to have everything stocked. And just the way the list is, like they'll always struggle to keep those copies stocked when there's only say a couple thousand versus say the by comparison, the tens of thousands of, say, ones from Eternal Masters that are floating out there. And mm -hmm. so you'll see very quickly that the list overtakes and surpasses kind of the older printings, even though it really yeah. shouldn't matter much. But we'll see significant premiums on 
desirable cards from the list solely just to the fact that they just go out of stock and stay out of stock longer. And that further kind of incentivizes you to grab kind of many copies of them and bricks because worst case scenario, you just buy list them and get like, if nothing else, a small profit, whatever you can't sell, even though realistically you will be able to sell Vampiric Tutor, like it's never not going to sell, but like mm-hmm. just that added aspect of it also kind of further incentivizes you to kind of look at these opportunities and think it's like, this is probably a pretty easy buy. Yeah, so it's I I love that you 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 held it up to mention that because this is actually not new uh, behavior from from Card Kingdom. Um, I, I I've dug into their algorithm because I know when I first got started in 2018, one of the things that I found very fascinating was that the pre-release foils would often the ones with the date stamped on them for for folks who are as out of date as I am. So just to give you a very rudimentary understanding of what they are. They, they're basically the regular foil and they have the date stamped on it because you would only get them from opening basically pre-release packs. And uh, Card Kingdom's buy list would habitually be almost like the regular foil would be 30 bucks and the pre-release would be 55. And it would just be, it would be such a ridiculous premium, but there were just so few of them out there relative to the general population. Uh, so it totally makes sense. Just, uh, but it, it, it's fascinating too, because it also means that people seem to essentially at least be willing to pay a premium for cards off the list, which I think is kind of fascinating. But moving on, Wizards basically embracing scarcity with the, the neon ink, the gilded foils. Uh, I think those gilded foils look amazing, but uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts on them so far? For me, it's like, I, it's all, when I look at a magic card at this point, like I've seen so many different card games, so many oh. different sets over time that it, you know, whether I get, do I get excited over a gilded foil or an etched foil? It's it's not really. But what I like to see is finally, like, in the past couple of sets, Wizards has started embracing, like, uh, creating some actual scarcity within their products so that people can open cards that, like, truly make them excited. Like, if we look back to, say, even just two sets ago to Vow, there was not a single card in Vow that you could open that you could be excited about, right? Like... The most, what is it like the $35 cultivator Colossus? It's like, yeah, it's worth more than the pack. <laughs> no one's, you'll never see a kid like open a pack and just sit there, like literally shaking Ooh. with excitement and adrenaline yeah. because he opened, you know, the card in the set, like the $4,000 Vegeta or Charizard or whatnot that other card games do right. And I'm glad that Wizards has finally started to introduce things like the Neon Ink Hidetsugu and the foil etched art deco of Nixilis, where it's like you could open a card and it's like, holy smokes this is five hundred dollars like I'm, I'm i'm shaking i can't contain my excitement like it's good to see that they're moving towards a, a model where it's like you can actually open something like a lottery cards that really make the pack opening experience like just exceptional for a couple people during a pre-release or during big events right it's obviously still not most people but it's not zero people which is the case with a set like val where you can't you know there's nothing mm-hmm. i so I, I have a question for you, which it's a bit of a loaded question, but I, I think it's good conversation. Um, back in 2016, when Watsi did the Kaladesh inventions, what separates those kinds of things, like the expeditions, the inventions, the those god-awful Egyptian ones, I, I forget their name, apologies, um, but what separates those from this, this new kind of style of, of rarity that they're doing? Really so far what it's been is overall supply because the big issue with obviously the stuff like masterpieces is it devalued the cards and it sets the proper way too much. Essentially you have boxes where the entire contents were functionally worthless because no one cared about them 
and you only made money if you opened a masterpiece. That was the only possible way to recoup your investment. So it, they went almost too overboard with the factory. It's like, because it was probably, I think it was about one in four boxes contained one. And they were so valuable and so desirable that it just devalued everything else to the ground. That's not the case with the new sets that we've seen. Like the Neon Ink and Hidetsugus, they were so rare that you couldn't, like you could crack 200 cases and not see one or you'd get like one, right? So they were too scarce to really chase and devalue the cards in the set proper by any significant extent. And the same thing is true for, say, the foil-etched Art Deco of Nixilis. You can open, I think some someone said they opened 200 CBBs and they opened four foil-etched Art Deco of Nixiluses. So mm-hmm. I, again, like you just can't possibly chase these cards and not enough people are going to open them to like to a degree to which it will actually impact the overall prices which is what you want they were just they were too heavy-handed with the supply and now that they've cut back in a big big way like we're talking by orders of magnitude we're seeing that they can do it in such a way that will not devalue the set i i just i giggle a little bit because it, it feels like they initially they basically made these kind of cards and these products for everybody at the start and that was tremendously detrimental. So now they're they're producing very very few. So that way, not everybody can basically have that experience. But that's what people apparently right they they want right. I mean, we've seen this from Pokemon and from other sets like those kinds of experiences. Like they, I guess they need to be unique. But I feel like it does go against kind of Watsi's entire style up until this point. Uh, in trying to basically produce for players instead of collectors and i feel like this this is definitely a a change of mindset for them so i just think that's very interesting and the nice thing is like for stuff like this it it still is for players like it's kind of new cool where they can produce like hitetsugu is worthless right like you can buy a regular copy and it's bulk it's literally 25 (laughs) cents like the card has no value and so it's like, it's not impacting the experience of players at all. Even Obnixilis, it has the regular printing. It has the borderless printing. It has the art deco. It has the foil art deco, right? Like there's just countless variations of Obnixilis if you want one. So you're in no way, shape or form gated by trying to get the ultra premium version. That's one in every, say, uh, 50 CBBs. But there is, you still have that lottery aspect where it's like a couple people, every pre-release are going to get those like, bombastic rare like cards that will basically just make create like an exciting experience not only for them but for everyone around them right because you really do share those kind of experiences like uh intrinsically through the people who like do open the the you know crazy mm-hmm. bombs because every every few years or whatnot you'll be the one right like every five years or whatnot you'll be the one who opens the crazy good card and it's just it's it's really it's, i think it's a really good change overall yeah, I mean that's yeah, that's that's very fascinating. So um I'm gonna throw a bit of a chaos grenade in here and I'll you know move us along if we need to, but I, I just think it's completely fascinating because from my perspective when I watch what Watsi's done, I see this this whole collector's mentality that you see with like Pokemon and other card games completely uncaptured by Watsi. They have an enormous player base that none of the others have, which provides a, a fantastic basement, but them actually now moving into capture basically what sports cards are doing and Pokemon are already doing uh, just feels like a massive buying opportunity. My my one reservation is I do feel like there's going to be a lot more um, money that they can chase with this new model, which might potentially detract from their original 
um, printing for players and it might remove from that experience. But obviously it's yet to be seen. And while so, so long as the money's there, I think it's, it's very, you know, uh, it's definitely worth chasing. But do you have any thoughts on that? I know I, I brought that out of nowhere. No, no. And I, like, I see your point where it's like, obviously like anything else you can, uh, it's, they're using it, but you could see a world where they abuse it. I'm not yes. like, I'm going to judge them on basically current actions. And I think they're moving to a better direction. And I like where the direction is heading. And it's like, I'm glad to see, say, Charizards and sets now, where for anyone who doesn't collect Pokemon, usually in a Pokemon set comes out, whatever the new, like, Ultra VMAX Charizard, whatever that is, it'll be the most valuable, the most chased, the most desirable card in the set that players are just, you know, excited to open. And now that we have, say, a foil etched Art Deco Omnixilis, which is kind of the same sort of idea. I do think it's um, like overall beneficial and I'm not going to say crucify wizards for doing like for things that they might do when currently I think they're doing something that's valuable. And just before we move on, I do want to quickly add one of the reasons why I brought this up is because I think that moving forward, there's going to be great buying opportunities because I think we're still living in kind of the old sort of mindset where wizards prints everything ad nauseum basically to the ground, no matter what it is. Like they just print it ad, in, ad infinitum. And that's not the case now with cards like we've seen now two sets row with Neon Ink Etetsugu and the Foil Edged Art Deco of Nixilis. And going forward, I think there's going to be, like, for one of the first times ever, actual, like, pre-sale opportunities where you buy these cards either on pre-sale or right after release while people still don't really realize how rare they are and just make an absolute fortune. I think, like, Jimmy uh, J.V. Frick from uh, Vegas Singles in our in our Discord is going to make a lot of money from Foil-Edged Art Deco on Nixlixes because he bought a whole big stack of them when people were kind of like, oh, how rare are these? And they're probably going to be $500 very shortly. And it's just like, I think that is, we'll, we'll be seeing more of that going forward. And you'll have a very small window to actually jump on these cards before they drain out, unlike most cards we see in Magic. And so this is more of a going forward, stay, you know, keep a close eye on the chase cards close to release and the very rare sort of printings, because those are probably worth pursuing, even though they historically have just been like, yeah, just waste of time and waste of money. Yeah, I mean, I... That all definitely scans, uh, especially from actionable information, which perhaps I get too distracted from. But the um, the only other point that I I want to bring up under this topic is that, uh, like you said, like Hidetsugu is a twenty five cent card. The Obnixilis is, you know, it's a card in the new standard, but it's it, these cards that they're giving these special treatments to require that you are already fully ingrained into magic right like if i were to open up a charizard from a pokemon pack even if i wasn't right like i know pokemon well enough to know like oh i've got a pikachu or i've got like charizard right they have that ip strength to kind of fall back on with with products like these and these these special editions of these cards it does feel kind of like it's thrown on tilt a little bit for for basically um magic players who are already in the hobby but if you were brand new I mean, obviously this is pure hearsay, but like, you know, is are these the kind of cards that, you know, will pull you into the game or is it really just to pull in existing consumers, I guess? Yeah, I don't have a good answer to that. I think it remains to be seen. Because um, like you said, especially with the special border overlord, I w- we were having a little game the other day where it's like, can you name all the new border <laughs> treatments in SNC? And it's like, I'm sure most people would be able to rattle off five or six and miss the last three or four. Um, 
And so you're right where it's like, I don't think at this point you could, but you never know. I think Wizards is going to move, like, I think we're going to see more numbered cards from what we're hearing moving forward and more kind of more obvious indications that a card is very scarce and very rare and very valuable. And so, you know, I'm willing to kind of sit back and watch and see how things unfold. But I do understand what you're saying about currently. It's like we really don't have that kind of understanding that it's like this is a ghost foil. This is valuable. It's like this just looks like one of the other 10 variations in the set. I have no idea what it's worth. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think at the end of the day, what I'm I'm stressing is kind of like the oddity at the table. What you're talking about is is purely actionable. So I think that that holds all the merit in the world in and of itself. But moving on to SNC and the impact that it's having on EDH, what are what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think most obviously, and this is should come as a surprise to no one, but the Triumphs are just like fantastic in the format. They're great sellers. It doesn't matter what versions you buy. The basic, the skyscraper, the borderless, they're all going to be valuable. From the sounds of things, the skyscrapers are quite a bit rarer than the um, comic book Triumphs were in Ikoria. And so mm-hmm. I think we're not going to see them stagnate as low as long as we saw those just because the, again, Wizards is really kind of reeling back on printing things to the ground, which is good to see. And you'll definitely want to be keeping an eye on bricks if you're interested in acquiring them. Not everyone is, obviously. But Triumphs, again, like I know everyone should already know this, but it's still good to reiterate, like certainly keep pay close attention because they're going to, they always sell, they always churn. They're great on buy lists. They're just good. They're great. Um, and part of that means also cards that care about forests or like sort of land types are also more relevant. Um, one thing we're seeing, and a couple members mentioned this, is that cards like Three Visits and Nature's Lore are selling really well on Direct because these are like two mana cards that they, you search your library for a forest and put it into play. Well, that forest clause is very key because it's not basic, it's just forest. So you can fetch a Triumph with it and fix three colors with these kind of ramp spells, which mm-hmm. makes them head and shoulders above, say, a rampant growth, which is only going to fetch one color, right? Because yeah. it's a basic land, not just any forest. And particularly like the, um, say, the nature's lore from the secret layer drop, you know, uh, the drop I was very high on the uh, or shows on Friday. Can you make it? Um, it's now up to like 20, 20 dollars ish or so, even on CK, like the buy list is getting way up there. And it's just because anyone playing EDH now needs these kinds of forest fetching cards, not just land fetching cards. And so they're definitely good to watch, especially if you're selling on direct, because the price is just going to keep going up and up and up. And these are going to be $10 uncommons from, you know, Commander Legends in no time, just as a result of people needing them for their triumphs. When I when I did completely overthought and overcomplicated analysis of, of what people purchase every time they make an order, fetch lands were far and away, like if you buy one fetch land i i am willing to actually bet a a very crisp alexander hamilton that you're probably buying at least one other likely buying three fetch lands in that same basket and those were the only items in all of magic that had such a strong and consistent unity to it however that was boring and i figured everybody would know it so i removed fetch lands and the only other items that came up with a basically detectable and regular pattern were the triumphs out of ikoria so the fact that these special edition triumphs are going to be more exclusive, that to me, just from a data perspective, makes me quite keen and interested to, to check those out and, and uh, honestly potentially buy in on that. So, I mean, I'm learning as we go here as you speak. So that's that's uh, fascinating for me. But uh, so the opinions I got on that. But 
see you've got a list of cards here as well that you might want to get into for for other staples out of here yeah so like there was always cards that like i I play test or i watch or i think will have value or long-term growth and not to say i don't want to make this as like a list of run out and buy these because (laughs) a lot of them especially the 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 rares it's like they can be slow and they'll probably stagnate but they're good cards to just be mindful of and a lot of times what i target is actually the extended art foils of these just because i think long term they're (laughs) you know how i feel about foils you're fine (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but it's I, I've done pretty well with cards that I consider to be best in slot inclusions, and like I've made a lot of say Academy Manufacturer and Runeforge Champion and Sanctum of All, and I, I don't know I, I find like EDH staples that are really sort of prevalent and popular and must includes so I tend to do well on, so I'm a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> high on them and so some cards i'm watching are like ledger shredder which is just basically it's a two mana one three flyer in blue and it, it it's basically whenever a player uh, plays two or more spells per turn yourself included it uh, connives which is where you draw a card discard a card if you discard a spell you put a one-on counter on it and this card has been like incredibly powerful in all the games i've seen it played it not only does it like uh, it's it's a it's an evasive threat for things like Timna and uh, a card we'll be talking about shortly, the professional facebreaker to like actually mm-hmm. hit players and trigger effects. It also digs very deeply for like cards that you're looking for, like for combo pieces or just action. If you need land spells, whatever, it fills the graveyard for things like uh, temporal trespass and other Dell spells. If you're playing reanimator, it puts fatties in the graveyard. It grows very large. Like it's not like a Manigord or Hydra or a Turian Mauler that will actually kill players very quickly, but it can very easily get to like five six seven ten power because players are casting spells and pretty soon it's swinging in for like real amounts of damage and killing planeswalkers things like that and overall it's like i've just been very impressed with the sort of amount of utility provides for a two drop and Mm -hmm. so like it's it's a card that i'm very interested in kind of long term in the format another one like i just mentioned is professional face breaker this is a red card two and a red two three menace uh, whenever a creature you control deals damage to a player, create a treasure, and then you can uh, sacrifice a treasure to exile a card, and you can play it till end of turn. This card sounds a little bit weird, but in EDH, you can hit three players a turn and create three treasures a turn, and that's either three mana or because you can exile them to kind of pseudo-draw cards. You can either create three mana or draw three cards a turn or some combination of both, and it's very powerful in creature decks, and I think... I don't see it going anywhere in the format like long term i just see this card being played in tons of different red x decks like not just red decks but boros decks and like five color nagila decks things like that anything that's hitting a bunch of players this just creates like an absurd amount of mana and cards also decks like prosper that create treasures right any deck that's making treasures this just becomes a very powerful card draw engine in general and so mm-hmm. i think this is a card that is like just very powerful and very relevant and will remain relevant in the format for basically as long as it's played and then i guess the last sort of generic staple is a bootlegger stash and this is a card that most people are aware of but what i very quickly realized when playing with this card is that it's it's, it's not a mana card like if it, this isn't a mana doubler at all and, the, and as soon as people start realizing that you start realizing how good it actually is <laughs> this is a permanence matter card like the more your deck cares about having stuff or doing stuff with stuff the more you realize that this card is just insane like if you're playing corvold and whenever you sacrifice a card it gets a plus one plus one counter and you draw a card well guess what creates like eight things to sacrifice every turn it's bootlegger stash mm. or um, there are cards like Time Sieve, right? It's just it's a two mana artifact, yeah. sacrifice five artifacts, take an extra turn after this one. You know what makes five artifacts every turn guaranteed? Bootlegger stash. So that's infinite turns. Let's say you're playing Bolus' Citadel, very commonly card played in EDH. It's like a it's like a future site that lets you play cards from the top of your library, except you pay life. 
and it has this other effect where you can sacrifice 10 things to deal 10 damage to each opponent and you gain 10 life. Normally it never comes up in EDH, but some of the bootlegger stash is like, oh, I can activate that, right? Like there, there are just so many situations where just any anytime you have a card that cares about sacrificing stuff or having artifacts come into play or having artifacts die or just having a big board state, like let's say you want to trigger the um, City's Blessing kind of thing. Like th there's just so many examples of cards where it's like if you have stuff, it does a good thing. And this will basically always be the best card of just generating the most amount of stuff every turn without fail super consistently. And so I don't even look at it as a mana card anymore, even though it is also a mana dealer in some scenarios. Like, so it's just like, it's just one of the most broken cards, I think. And I, I, I'm very, very high on its kind of long-term prospects because it will never not be like the best card for Stuff's Matters archetypes. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's fascinating when you, when you put these cards here. Uh, by the way, there's no better name for a red card than Professional Face Breaker. That just makes me oh, it's amazing every time I read it. But like I see Ledger Shredder, I'm like, oh yeah, that's an amazing card. Two CMC value generator, professional face breaker. Like I didn't even realize until you said it is the flexibility of it because I mean I don't play red. You know that's that's a value generator and bootlegger stash. I also see it's a uh, uh, you know basically a value generator. But the one thing that I hesitate because I obviously don't play Magic that much is that at a six CMC cost, is that not a little bit of a of a win more card? No, not in oh, casual EDH. Okay. It's it's not even close. Like we're okay. far beyond the realm of <laughs> yeah. like casual EDH. Like people like to stress like things are win more. It's, in CDH, sure, it's win more. In casual EDH, it's not even close. Like you can slam a six drop on turn four, and the game hasn't even begun basically. So yeah. I don't agree. And like believe yeah. me, I understand. Like I because you cast this on turn six, or we'll just say you cast this on sure. turn five or six, whatever. Does nothing. Then the next turn, most people are thinking this is a mana doubler where you tap all your lands to create treasure tokens and they, they see that as doing nothing because you haven't doubled your mana the thing this is a mana doubler and it's like well and it's like i've just wasted my turn but it's like but it's not you've actually made like say five or six or seven things and you can do something with those things like if you have corvold those seven things are not nothing those seven things are like plus seven plus seven draw seven <laughs> cards right like or if mm -hmm. you have time see if it's like those seven things are just i win the game or if you have like you know you can just if you have like a an academy manufacturer again now that's it's it's a food it's a it's a clue it's a treasure right it's all the things there's just plenty if you have a jet mirror in play or sorry a um uh there's like there's a card in the new set that it's like when you create a token you can make instead a 2-2 two, two haste or a 3-1 vigilance dog and it's like well those seven things could just become seven 2-2 two, two hasted cats right and it's like so mm -hmm. people need to stop thinking about this as like the turn where you tap your lands it's doing nothing oftentimes the turn where you're tapping lands it's actually doing something incredibly powerful and will continue to do so for the rest of the game and that's really why i think it's it's not win more it's very much like a, a like it's in, it's on par with what you want to be doing in edh so i mean is it a fair statement and and definitely nitpick away to say that it it people are kind of looking at this almost with like a traditional comparison to like a mana reflections or a doubling yeah. season but when in reality, it's its completely own thing. And so it's currently, you know, enjoying the grace of that comparison. But what people need to realize is it's its own thing. And people and we will be comparing things against it in the future, right? That's what it sounds like. Yeah, that's basically what I mean. It's like, if, you, if, you, if you're thinking this is a Zendikar resurgent or whatnot, just as like a, a six-mana man doubler, it's like you've missed the plot, basically. That's not <laughs> what this card is, and that's not yeah. what it's going to be going forward. Yeah. It's We're going to be seeing it doing wildly different things, while also sometimes doing that when it has nothing better to do.
I have one more thing, and then I promise I do want to talk about the next one that you have written here. But just because this one is also, it's already, I'm like, I'm looking at the non-foils of the extended art, or at least, I guess, the borderless. If that's the extended art, I'm, I'm an old man. But I see that as at like $26, and that's a $50 foil already. And And basically, from what we're discussing here, just because when it gets above like 10 bucks, it, it, I feel like when it's so recently released, I'm always so reticent to, to buy in at these prices because it's, it's like, hmm, right? Like it's in a standard yeah. production. Like, do you have any, like, I, and I know I'm, I'm making it, I'm tainting it with finance, but like, what, what are your thoughts on the, on the price point of the card, I guess? I think right now, currently, bootlegger stash is overvalued. Like, I'm not buying, I haven't bought a single copy and don't plan to for some time. I just know that, like, I think for a lot of these cards, like I said, Ledger Shredder, I've only bought EAFs, uh, Professional Facebreaker, I've only bought EAFs, like Extended Art Foils, I should say, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, Bootlegger Stash, I haven't bought a single copy, because right now everyone's super hyped on it, but everyone's super hyped on it as Mana Doubler, which I think it's going to largely fall flat if that's what you think its average use case should be, which because I don't think that's what its average use case should be. But... I do expect this price to come down because right now we're just, we're still at kind of restricted supply and we're still at kind of hype demand. And this is a popular set by all accounts. It's selling very well. All the vendors have said as much. And so when the restocks come in, they're going to be maxed out. And I guarantee you, they're going to be selling quite well still for a while. Yeah. So I think bootlegger stash and whatnot, like you, if you're buying these cards now for like a financial perspective, uh, you're, you're, you're going to be, You'll you'll be hurting basically <laughs> in a few months when the prices come down by another you know ten bucks or whatnot. I'm just kind of thinking like long term. These are the kind of cards I look at and say like I do see like eventually this card will be worth acquiring. Right now, I'm not really interested in a lot of them, but I do just think it's kind of curious like what you should be watching for or what are the cards that like will probably stand the test of time versus like what's just going to crash and burn, which is most things. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. Um, I, I just wanted to mention that because that one actually has a, a decent price tag. And since we're talking it up, I always like to tear things down that, that have bigger price tags. But um, honestly, before we moved on, I was going to say I should stress that it's like I'm not buying bootlegger stash at current prices. <laughs> I just I'm very high on the card long term as I think because Wizards is never going to stop printing stuff that cares about having stuff. And it will always be the best card of producing stuff. So every time they print another card where it's like you need treasures or you need artifacts or you need ETBs or leave the battlefield or whatnot, it will just be an auto include. And that's what I like to see in cards. Yeah, I mean, and for me, like I, I've looked at Ledger Shredder before, and I've really, I've, I've already debated buying into that one, and then Professional Facebreaker, it, it's, it's a rare red card, so it breaks every rule in my body because I've been burned too many times to go in on those. So, like, but I knew those two existed, and I liked, I kind of like their price points because it's, it's safer. So, uh, the Bootlegger Stash, I, I knew was like a marquee card driving the value of the set. So. Um, you know, it's it's always good to to take it with a grain of salt for for those bigger those bigger cards. I think, but you have uh you have another card here, which again it goes against another rule of mine. Um, basically meddling mage here with with some upside, uh, but uh, scheming fence. I think yeah. So this is a card. It's a it's a blue white two three, and when it enters the battlefield, it basically shuts off the activated abilities of the card, yeah. and it can then use them. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm just kind of paraphrasing a bit, but 
I, I, that's more or less what yeah. it does. And I think what most people miss with this card is what it really is. It's two mana, destroy your soul ring, create one for myself. It's kind of got that <laughs> Dak Bane effect where the goal is basically, I'm going to come down, I'm going to destroy your good mana rock, like your mana crypt. It's still going to deal three damage to you every other turn, but I'm the one who's tapping for two mana, not you. And I think like, it's actually a very powerful card, but I think it's going to suffer from the fact where when you read this card, it's not immediately obvious what it does or why you use it or why it should be in a deck. Because you, again, you think of this as like a hate bear, but in reality, it's a hate bear slash mana rock in and of itself. And that's kind of why I think makes it so powerful. But I also don't think it's like, I think if you say spec on the regular copies, you're just going to lose a boatload of money (laughs) because the average player is never going to buy this card and put in their deck. And so it's like, you know, maybe you buy Accenture Foils, but even then, I'm not really interested in it until I see them moving. But mm-hmm. it's just a card I think is actually, like, very, very, very powerful in EDH and should basically be included in a lot of blue-white decks. But I also don't think it ever will, just because, again, like, when you're when EDH players build decks, they're usually building buckets, right? They have their ramp bucket and their mm-hmm. removal bucket and their win condition and their blah, yeah. blah, blah. Exactly. And this doesn't go in any one of those buckets. You, It's not immediately obvious which one it goes into either way. Maybe it goes in the hate bear bucket kind of thing, but that's not one people usually care about to begin with. So I just want to point it out that it's like, I actually think this is a very good card. It's like I, one of the reasons why I love Dak Fane in EDH. It just comes down, I steal your solving, right? You lose one, I gain one. It's so, it feels so good. Like it's such a big swing. And this is the same thing at two mana. Like, that's really, really, really good. But I also just think, like, no one will ever buy it. <laughs> so I, I, I'm i not saying run out and buy them. I just, I would keep an eye on maybe the extended art foils and just be aware of the fact that it's like, maybe people will care about this, but it's hard to say. It feels to me that this is a card that has, like, CEDH effect, but not to a degree high enough to actually be played in CEDH, but it has that flavor and feel i don't have a better way to define it where if you played in casual yeah. feelings will be hurt <laughs> uh which which makes oh, yeah. it right because the, the price point is so low but it, it has such a great effect but when you play this if you steal somebody else's thing and they have to sit across from you while you're using their soul ring that is so like that helpless feeling it's it's feel bad yeah. right like it, that's that's what oh, it yeah. generates and it's like yes it's absolutely powerful but it's also not quite good enough, but it's also too good at offending somebody else. Um, and yeah, and it, it's just the perfect worst of all worlds. Yeah, like it's good. And I great like you. I love the design. It's almost there, but it doesn't do enough to get over the feel bads that you're going to generate. And it's not quite effective enough on its own to warrant uh, inclusion in a competitive format or a competitive version of the game where feel bads don't exist. Right. Uh, at least that's how I see yeah. it. Uh, but you you have another one here, and actually, I mentioned Resplendent Angel solely because I played against a Giada yesterday, and um, somebody the guy played Resplendent Angel, and he's like, "That's a forty dollar card," and I was like, "Oh, you got to be kidding me!" But uh, I know you you've got Giada here talking about standard, pioneer, modern, uh, playable card, and love to hear your thoughts on that one. Yeah, I mean, I know we're currently talking about EDH, but it's like, it has to be said that Giada is just like a 10 on 10 magic card. Like, it, it's an overpowered <laughs> magic card in the sense that if every card were on its level, like, magic would just be a very different game. And part of what reigns it in is the fact that, like, most angels aren't 10 on 10s. They're, like, maybe 5 or 6 on 10s. 
but when you add Geod- like Geodis just like a, a, a I pl- like every format I've seen her played in, including modern, she has some obscenely powerful like starting hands and like nut draws, and it's just like you realize you appreciate how powerful this card is when you play against it in literally every format, and so that is not going to be lost. And even in EDH, where it's like you're thinking like, oh, angels, like how could that be good? It's like, well, when you're casting Geod on turn two every game, and it's not only ramping but it's pumping your angels to like significant sizes because for a card like resplendent angel it's reliant on the fact that it has to hit for a certain amount of damage before you kind of trigger that um uh the like creating the token or whatnot and so just having like larger sized cards becomes very relevant sometimes where it's like there are certain cards that basically are reliant on having say a certain amount of damage being dealt or whatnot or just having big life linking threats or big fine beaters in general becomes quite a bit scarier when they're hitting for reasonable sums and that's what giada does and you know it this is one of those things where just watch the watch list and see what's moving because things like bishop and wings of resplendent angel herald of the host this these are some of these we've mentioned already some in ban you've talked about some other casts um i think a chroma's will is a card that's going to do very well because not only for cards like giada but it's also very very good in token decks of which there's quite a number of token commanders in this set and when you start to see like look at the ck um price on a chroma's will and versus what it's selling for on the market you realize it's like that discrepancy is going to close sooner rather than later because the buy list keeps going up the the market price keeps going up and so pretty soon a chroma's will is not going to be a five or six dollar card or whatever it is I, i tell you that much um, and it's it's not just because of Giada, but it is in big part because of like all these white commanders becoming significantly more playable. And so even things like Flawless Maneuver, right, the, like that card is just a must-have in any sort of angel deck or any sort of token deck. I know it's a card we've talked about ad nauseum. You, you've mentioned it many times as well, but... It, these are cards that it's like Giada is mostly moving, but there's also some kind of uh, spillover from the token commanders that's really like pumping these cards like a Chroma's Will and Flawless Maneuver, while also paying attention to the Angels Matter cards, which are solely because of Giada. Yeah, no, and and actually to your point, uh, I know you know it's a personal anecdote, but he had the Sarah's Ascendant turn one into Giada, and if we didn't have a board wipe on turn five, he was literally going to 1v4 um like yeah and aggro and he, he, he i mean he was swinging away so yeah that makes a lot of sense um it's amazing that they're they're printed and for, for anyone wondering why herald of the host is moving so much is because when it attacks and it creates those um the two copies of it sorry i forget the name of the mechanic already but it's um <laughs> i'm not sure if you remember it <laughs> Anyways, it creates two angels, and so when you cast your angels, Giada puts counters on it based on a number of the angels you have in play, and Herald of the Host is basically three angels, right? Because it's it's got the main body and then the two sort of copy bodies that can come oh, out. Oh, yes, yes, And yes. so there are... Period. There are scenarios, like, oftentimes you have to sort of cast them at instant speed, like an Aether Vial or something, um, to kind of cast your creatures at instant speed, but it's just like it creates sort of a lot of even just the angels themselves coming in are quite large like the token angels um beating players for like large sums of damage even if the angels you're not casting afterwards aren't hitting for crazy amounts it's just like like you say it's basically you can play an aggro deck and have it be viable just because of the amount of damage yada pushes out with her counter effect which is just like one of the you know 20 lines of text (laughs) on that card (laughs) yeah yeah i mean that's that's one you've got to be good at reading to understand but there's another theme in this set which has been moving things and uh just briefly if, if you're you know if you're up for it uh could you explain what beamtown bullies are for anybody who might not be aware and, and kind of the, the cards that you're you're flagging because of them 
Yeah, so this is a it's a four color Jund commander, and what it does is you can it has haste and vigilance, and you can tap it on another player's on basically you can only tap it on another player's turn. But what you can do is you can reanimate a creature from your graveyard into play under their control. So it's like a reverse reanimator card, and it's well, whoever the active player is, you can force them to reanimate one of your creatures. And what makes this powerful is there are a lot of like really awful creatures in Magic that basically lose you the game on the spot. And these are not normally cards you could ever play. But because of the Beamtown Bullies, you can basically force your opponent to cast them and get them and just have all those horrible, nasty things happen to them. And kind of as soon as I saw this card, I immediately fell in love with it. I knew it would be popular. I knew it would be big because most players are like myself and they're just very old and jaded and like all the joy has been like sucked out of their souls and whatnot. And so when you see like a new like card where it's like I can make all my friends miserable with this, it just like fills you with joy. <laughs> and I knew so Beantown Bullies, it's basically like you get to play all the most awful cards ever printed in Magic and make your opponents play with them. And I, which to me is just like the absolute coolest thing ever. And we've been talking about it for a while in Ben, and we've covered most of the specs. And a lot of them have come and gone at this point. Like you're not buying Hellcarver Demons this late into the game, or if you are, mm -hmm. you're not making any money off them. But even to this day, we're still seeing cards that like you can go back and look in the Ben text. Uh, if you're in Ben, you can go back and look at the, uh, the, the text, text chat. chat. Yeah. I mentioned cards like even Blade Reaper. As soon as the card was spoiled, but I kind of dismissed it because there's just so much more broken things to be doing. Like cards like Leveler. If your opponent you know cast a leveler quote unquote well they lose their library they're just dead right so a card like uh, uh i should specify the even blade reaper it's a two mana creature when it attacks you lose half your life and when it hits a player they lose half their life so in beamtown bullies because I, I forgot to mention this earlier it goads the creature forces them to attack so you reanimate this card under someone else's control they have to attack with it, lose half their life. And if they hit someone, that player loses half their life. So it's just kind of like, you know, a really obviously feel bad moment. Mm -hmm. And I actually dismiss this as being way too underpowered because of how like obscenely overpowered some of the other alternatives are. And it, it the card didn't move initially, but now it is moving. And it's basically only because of this card. I personally don't think like it's viable or needed and it's like i would certainly be flipping this into the hype because i don't think this is like a great card for that deck or strategy in general but it's even blade reaper has just been draining and draining and draining and this is the only possible explanation because it's a playable card in that sort of archetype and so i just wanted to mention the fact that it's like hey even though we dismissed this earlier we're seeing it move now so if you can still find copies at old prices like it's probably a good thing to jump on mm -hmm. and um I guess just quickly moving on, the other way to build kind of the Beamtown Bullies is, like, I talked about exactly. casting yeah. bad cards, like the Leveler, which is just, like, exiles your library. There's cards like Eater of Days, where it's, like, you lose your next two turns, right? All these just bad things happening. Ooh. Well, the other way to build the deck is, like, a Eureka deck, a Hypergenesis deck, a deck that basically you force your opponent to reanimate a creature that lets you cast a bunch of big, fun stuff. And the two main cards that I highlighted for that, and again, this was way back, well, a couple weeks ago at this point, were Bold Weir Heavyweights and Tempting Worm. And Tempting Worm, I'll just say, it's a two-mana 5-5. Five, five. I never heard of this card. I'm sorry, I just read it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> what is this ridiculousness? <laughs> oh, these cards are absolutely insane. Like, Tempting Worm, it's a rare from Onslaught. It goes back a million years, but it's, it's a two-mana 5-5. Five, five. And the reason it's a two-mana 5-5 five, five is when you play it, all your opponents can put any number of permanents from their hand onto the battlefield. And normally in EDH, that's just pure insanity. Like... You're just going to lose the game on the spot. Your opponents will play like a bunch of Kozilex and Eldrazi and Battlecruisers and destroy you. 
But with Beantown Bullies, you can make someone else cast it and put your Eldrazi <laughs> Titans and whatnot into play. And just like, so like uh, crazy stuff. Like, and it's all your broken enchantments and all, all the, any, any, like all the crazy, super fun, overpowered, like overcosted nonsense that you can never normally play. You get to put into deck and just jam it for play. free. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and then there's Boldweir Heavyweights, which is another creature. And this is like a four mana for an 8-8 trample. And again, you're thinking, well, that's overpowered. And it's like, well, no, it's not. Because when it enters the battlefield, your opponents can search your library for a creature and put it into play. And so that's usually how it's balanced. It's balanced by the fact that your opponent gets something just as good, if not better, often. But again, in EDH, like you can play like Eldrazi Titans or Gingitaxis or Sire of Insanity, whatever broken nonsense you want, and just kind of do crazy things. And because this pulls straight from the library, it's like whatever the best thing in your deck is, you get. And so whereas Tempting Worm needs a bunch of stuff in hand, that's great the first time. But if you say get Wrath of Godded and you don't have a refill ready, Boulder Heavyweights is kind of the next go-to because it pulls straight from your deck. So it's a good kind of backup consolation when you don't have the Tempting Worm or you've already used your worm to kind of keep the game going and kind of still enact your strategy. And so they're both very much essential. And I kind of pointed this out a long time ago. That you're you're going to need both these creatures no matter what for this version of the deck. And that's why if you look at, say, uh, like uh, I always say, look at the band tools, look at the newspaper, look at, look at what's selling. Well, these cards have just been on the front page for the past, you know, couple days at this point because everyone is really excited about Beamtown Bullies and including like all versions of the deck. And so any like must-have cards are just selling like hotcakes. See, being being the guy that I am, out of line, the first thing that, that I thought of when you talk about like the, the bold rear heavyweights and the tempting worm was like, oh, that's fun. The first card that came to my mind was Stranglehold. And I feel like that 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 is a win more card in that that scenario. But I was like, ah, I wonder. Um Oh no, absolutely not. Like you wanna go all out like degeneracy, like whatever makes your opponents <laughs> as miserable as possible. Like that's that's the whole point. That's that's why you play this card. <laughs> I, I, There's no such thing as win more. Oh, like man. it's you wanna cast you wanna revive a world gorger dragon for your opponent and then kill it and leave them with literally no permanence and say have fun playing the rest of the game. <laughs> like it's <laughs> there's there's nothing fun or exciting or reasonable about what the Beamtown Bullies does, and that's what makes it like such a awesome card in my opinion. It's its own like it's almost created its own archetype, it feels like, which is it's it, Oh, it's straight up has, yeah. and that's why I like it so much. You get to play with cards and do things and see things that you've never seen before that no one has ever seen or thought of. And that's what makes it kind of, in my opinion, by far and away the most exciting, interesting, and best card to spec on from the set is just because you, okay. you, you've you never seen a game like this. Yeah, and you can bet, um, I, I mean, I would bet there's probably going to be further support for it going down the line, but it, it feels like, to me, it feels like a really fun turn. And you mentioned, uh, I, I believe you said that this is Jun Colors, right? Yeah, yeah it feels like a fun spin on Goad. Uh, which I think is is I love goat. I think goat is one of my favorite mechanics alongside monarch. But I'm I'm a weird person. But uh, on that on that Jund line, you've got Cor- Corvold, Fey Cursed King here specifically. But I think this is this is kind of a callback to something we might have touched on earlier with Bootlegger Stash and the uh, the treasure tokens, right? Yeah, and it's kind of just like Corvold has always been like they're like Beamtown Bullies is is great and it's awesome, but it's a very niche specific deck that it's like let's be real, it's going to lose sort of its luster after the first couple times you play it. It's probably not a deck that can be your main deck unless you depower it quite a bit by pulling out all the most <laughs> egregious cards that really just kill players. Like you can't level or someone on turn three and say like this is going to be the game from now on. It's like that that's a bit much. I think everyone can agree on that. 
And so the fallback and a car that's just been like, especially for me, it's like I can't keep a copy stocked at this point is Corvold because with all the sacrifice matter stuff from the new Riveteers, John Mechanic, like, and Treasure specific, like, no, it's not because it's not just Treasures, it's also the Riveteer, like the Blitz mechanics and the sacrifice mechanics. Corvold is just like, he's just going back up and up and up and just selling, selling, selling because he's really the ultimate guy to put at the helm of all these decks. Because if you're casting treasures and sacrificing things, well, Corvold is the card that, like, kills people. He refills your hand. He's just a powerful enabler because he can start sacrifice change and chains and whatnot. And so it's just a really good card to, like, be having and selling because everyone building these sort of Jundi sacrifice whatnot decks are interested in that type of effect. And odds are if they're building that commander deck, he'll be at the helm and not kind of one of the other more anemic sort of um, alternatives that you could be turning to. Yeah. No, I love Corvold. Um, the, the non-foil being basically more rare than the foil is like my my greatest dream, and I've I've quadrupled dipped into that card. So I love seeing it brought up by somebody who's not <laughs> me. <laughs> um, but so I mean, we've talked, we've kind of talked about the impact on EDH, but uh, you're going to talk about a, a format that I think most people just kind of claim is is basically outright dead for paper but you want to talk about its potential standard implications yeah and i probably won't spend too much time on this one just because i think right now like standard is not a big mover and shaker and i don't think many people are care about or building decks for it yet and so i'll just kind of keep it brief but the two like kind of main cards and i'm going to lump some together is the triomes and Omnixilis. basically like the things that are going to sell the things that are going to have the biggest impact are triomes and Omnixilis. like Omnixilis, the adversary is an absolutely messed up card i promise you he's going to see competitive play in standard pioneer modern like this card is just bonkers and it's like i'm i'm actually still buying them at current prices because I don't think it's anywhere near its max. Like I think once people see that this card is being played in standard, pioneer, and modern, they're going to realize it's like, oh, this is not a thirty-dollar card. This is a fifty-dollar card, or at least it will be for a short period of time until a much more supply comes in. But like, it, basically, any format where you're doing any sort of like jundy, grindy sort of uh, sacrificey thing, like there are lots of um, Oni Cult Anvil decks and just Cat Oven decks and things of that nature. Um, this car, even just aggressive at, or Rakdos decks, um, this card is just like a monstrously powerful three drop that really takes over the game very quickly and puts an obscene amount of pressure on them, especially when paired with cards like Croxa uh, and Turok, the uh, Dead Cantor and formats like Modern, Liliana the Veil, right? Like there's just so much other pressure. Mm-hmm. I, like I, I don't think I'm going to read the all the effects of Obnixilis. People can go read it if they want, but it's just a very aggressive discard sort of like... Um, uh, life lost focused or, um, um, planeswalker and I do think he's very close in power level to a card like Oko which obviously had to be banned in numerous formats and like uh, I, I don't think he's quite as powerful but I think he's encroaching on that in terms of just his overall impact in the sense that this is a card you're going to get sick of seeing and that may get to the point where it has to you know uh, go in one of the formats because it just becomes slightly problematic Time will tell, but it's certainly a card where it's like, if you're not keeping a bead on uh, Nixilis and like its potential implications, like you might miss the boat. So just like keep an eye on the supply, keep an eye on decklist, keep an eye on people like chatting about it because other than the Triomes, like this will be the chase card of the set that will have the most multi-format impact. Mm. 
And I guess uh, next, I want to talk about some cards that are just kind of, I see quite a bit, not necessarily just in standard. Most of these are standard only, but some of them are in other formats as well. I'll just briefly run over a couple cards that it's like I'm personally watching. Again, I haven't bought a single one of these cards yet. So if you're looking for like run and buy these, like I'm not, but just understand that it's like, these are cards that are on kind of my watch list. Uh, the first is just Taint and Indulgence. This is an uncommon, probably has no real financial implications <laughs> because of that, but it's blue and a black. Draw two cards, discard a card at instant speed. It has some other kind of like, it, it has like if you control, uh, if your graveyard has five or more cards with different mana costs, you just draw two cards instead. Honestly, it almost never comes up. This is basically just an instant speed, draw two, discard one. Very powerful card, just going to see multi-format play, going to be a staple for of and a lot of graveyard matter decks, a lot of control decks, a lot of decks with like recursive threats. Um, again, I'm sure it'll sell well on direct. I'm sure it'll have strong buy list backing. I'm sure when events start, this will be a card people will be looking for. Can you make a bunch of money off it? Probably not. I'm not running out and buying bricks or whatnot at two or three bucks, but this is just a card that's going to be relevant as long as it's basically legal. <laughs> Um, moving on to rares, Tenacious Underdog. This one is a 2-mana 3-2, and it has Blitz for 2 and Black Black, and you can cast it from your graveyard for its Blitz cost and pay 2 life. And so this is the quintessential aggressive 2-drop, where it's like you cast on turn 2, it's a 3-2, and then when it dies, you can just start blitzing it for 4-mana, hit your opponent for 3, and because it's Blitz, you draw a card when that creature dies. No matter how it dies, whether they use removal on it, whether they block it, whether it hits them and dies, and then a turn, you draw a card. And I found this card to be amazing, like not just in Standard, but Pioneer. It might see some modern play too, as just a very aggressive, like a very powerful threat. Because normally these kind of threats, they can't block, they have because that just becomes a little bit too um, uh, oppressive for other creature decks to fight against. But this one can block, and so this can block and trade and fight. And against control decks, it's still like other dash cards, like dashes was a similar mechanic to Blitz, where it's like you can just kill the creature and be done with it. It's like, no, not only is this dash from the graveyard, but it's also every time you do it, you draw a card, and that really adds up. Like the the, the draw the card like addition on the Blitz makes this card feel like such a oppressive grind engine in the late game where it's like you're actually out grinding the control decks, which makes no sense. It's like the low of the ground aggro deck, but I just think this tenacious underdog card is like very very powerful, and we'll see a lot of play in multiple formats. And so, again, am I buying like bricks in the current value? No, but I'm certainly keep an eye on like the the special versions because um, this one does have the foil etched versions too, kind of like Omnixilis, and I could definitely see those being worth quite a bit down the road if this card keeps seeing play in a bunch of different formats. Um, Moving on to slightly more niche stuff, Voidrend, this was just the Esper card, so it's the Esper colors, can't be countered, instant speed, destroy target permanent, just a very basic removal mm -hmm. spell, decks aren't going to play four, but a lot of them are going to play one or two between the main deck sideboard, you'll see plain standard, pioneer, modern again, like modern is going to see plays a four of, no, but one or two copies, because it can't be countered and destroys anything, so... It's just a very relevant, efficient, useful, generic removal spell, as long as you can cast it. And the most decks aren't Esper, most decks can't cast it. So I don't think it's going to be like a big spec target, but I also never see this card going to bulk or whatnot, just because it is pretty relevant in basically every format. Mm -hmm. um, standard, I one card I've been pretty impressed with so far is Rafine, Scheming Seer. This is another just like Esper card, so it's all Esper colors. It's a 1-4 flyer with Ward 1. And it has, whenever you attack, you connive X, where X is the number of attackers. And this is seeing play in, right now, standard is primarily dominated by a lot of the like, low-of-the-ground blue, or uh, sorry, white-black aggro decks of sorts. And this card, like, actually produces quite a bit amount of value and, like, uh, power 
while also being a card that's somewhat hard to remove because it does have Ward 1. I mean, that's not obviously like the greatest form of defense, but it's not nothing. And often when you cast this, like you'll have three or four creatures in play where you're going to, you know, loot four times, put probably two or three counters on one of your attackers. And because of cards like Tenacious Underdog and um, Skyclave Shade, which you can cast from your graveyard, this actually like virtually draws more, like this generates card advantage because a lot of the cards that you're binning you're actually recurring then later on as like actual cards. And so it's not just card selection, it's also card advantage. And specifically because of Tenacious Underdog, it's actually a lot of card advantage because Tenacious Underdog itself is like drawing a card. And then when it blitzes, you're drawing more cards. And like I keep saying, you're almost out grinding a lot of the control decks playing like removal spells and like big finishers because you're literally seeing more cards than they are, which doesn't seem right for the aggro deck, but it really is. And so... I'm very curious to see... It sounds like it's um, it's basically the adventure mechanic done right, right? Just the way you described it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly one way of looking. Yeah, that's that's one... Yeah, that's a, I guess that's a pretty good callback to it. And it's just... I, I just... I guess I like seeing, like, how they've introduced a different form of card advantage to, like, and a more aggressive, right? Because when you think of Esper, you just think Esper control, right? That's what literally everyone mm-hmm. thinks. You think Esper charm, right? Like, draw two cards, destroy a card, counter a spell, like... It, no one thinks like Esper aggro, but it's like it is Esper aggro, but it's also kind of card advantage and control. And it's just a really cool and powerful archetype with uh, the new ninja planeswalker, the um, uh, oh, I already forget his name, the uh, from the, the Neo set, the, the ninja commander or the uh, planeswalker. But anyways, um, it's just I, I do think I've seen this card in a lot of decks as a four of. And I think like going forward, it will be powerful, just particularly because of Tenacious Underdog and Skyclave Shade and other sort of Graveyard Matters sort of uh, effects. And then lastly, a card I just want to mention, because it's a card I said was unplayable trash, <laughs> is Elspeth Resplendent. Um, oh, the I would have, like... Well... I when I, usually when I see a five mana planeswalker, it's like I need to see something that it does something relevant the turn it comes into play. And Elspeth doesn't seem like she protects herself that well. Her plus one seems pretty anemic. Like yes, it's fine putting on creatures, but it's also it doesn't feel like especially powerful. Her ultimate, it's powerful. Like it's certainly useful, but I never pegged this as like I just saw another unplayable five drop. But I've actually seen her quite a bit in standard. Like a lot of decks are playing one or two copies. And it's been okay. Like, I'm not, I could see them going away. I don't know how long she'll see play. But I do just want to call the fact that it's like, I'm I, I'm seeing a, this card in a reasonable number of, like, decks that are doing well. And so maybe she's actually playable. And maybe I'm just wrong. And I can't evaluate Planeswalkers <laughs> to save my life. It's certainly a possibility. Um, but I just, I wanted to mention that it's like, this was a card I previously called just terrible. And maybe it's not actually that terrible. I mean, they've really, like, uh, what's the like factory mass produced five CMC planeswalkers, right? Like every supplemental product they do, and like occasionally you get a good one like Nissa, where the land drops and just draws cards all the time. But like it's so few and far between now. It's, yeah, it's almost very it, templated is the word that I'm looking for, and so it's really hard to uh, yeah because yeah. it's it's. Plus one kill creature, minus, or sorry, plus one draw card, minus three kill mm-hmm. a creature, you know, ultimate win the game, right? That's the basic five mana template. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what it has to do to be viable. And for Elspeth, her plus one doesn't draw a card, adding counters to me. It's like the counters and the token. It's like 
the uh, the ability counter, I guess I should say. It's like that's not really drawing a card. Her <laughs> minus, you know, the fact that she can pick something at three CMC. It's like I don't know. I I just never. I would not have expected this card to see any sort of play. But she actually seems like she could be a reasonable inclusion as a one or two of. Yeah. So and I I do love that if you currently look on TCG Player, there's a typo in her description where they say she purrs the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order instead of puts it. Uh, yeah, well, I, I've actually noticed quite a few typos in TCG Player recently. CK2, I noticed they actually had way more than I'd previously seen. So I don't know if that's something new, but I've seen it on both sites. So Cool stuff, Inc. Inc. They actually enter their set information by hand. And um, it's hard mm. enough to marry up all of the sets as everybody kind of denotes them a little bit differently. But then you add in typo errors and it'll just drive you up the wall. But you know you so you mentioned all of those you mentioned all those cards and i appreciate that you mentioned like elspeth resplendent as one that you, you didn't think too highly on but one that uh obviously got a ton of hype when it was announced and caused a, a devoted druid movement uh luxior and Giada's gift and see i see this and i thought this was like this is just going to be like cedh infinite combos toy forever so i'm curious why um why this one didn't draw any attention well I guess this specifically was for standard. Um, I don't see this card seeing play in standard, but but I can actually talk about this one. I actually, I think this card is reasonably powerful and it's got a, I, I hate the word unique, but it does have a unique effect where it's like not, it kind of enables planeswalkers to fight as creatures and because the card's like, I just I hear overrated in your tone. Am I wrong? Yeah, it's it's very. Oh, I guess we can kind of to, to in the interest of brevity. I think it's very, currently very overrated. I think the use cases for this card are much more niche than people realize. It may see some competitive modern play in a devoted druid sort of combo shell, um, particularly especially because Urza Saga fetches it as a one mana artifact. This is a card that you know it. it Devoted Druid um, is a card that you can tap and put a minus one, minus one counter on it to add a mana. And because this thing gives creatures plus one, plus one for each counter on them, it negates every single uh, minus one, minus one counter that Devoted Druid puts on itself. So you can basically just, uh, I explained that poorly because Devoted Druid taps for a mana, but you can put a minus one, minus one counter on it to untap it. And because Luxier gives the creature plus one, plus one for each counter on it, um, every minus one, minus one counter gets negated. And so this just taps and taps for infinite mana. And so because it's a one mana artifact, you can fetch it with Urza Saga. And so in modern, it's very easy to create a deck with Devoted Druid, Urza Saga, Eladmarie's Call, Court of Calling, things of that nature, and just very re reliably locate these two cards, create infinite mana, and then like walking the list of your opponent to death. And... While there are other use cases for this card, such as putting on a Gideon and smacking people around in casual decks or EDH, I think they're much more niche and much more like um, the, the average use case is not that impressive and people are probably overrating it in general. And so I think this card is currently like 20 or $25, but they're going to quickly realize it's not actually that valuable. And so I don't really care about this card until it falls drastically in price. And even then, it's like this is never going to be like the Ozolith mm -hmm. or whatnot, because it's just not a card that most people will ever need or have any use for. And the people who do, it's like they'll probably uh, it's, it's probably going to be overrated for too long, at least for my take. That's like for now, for the time being, I'm just I don't care about this card. At yeah, all. I got you. No, it's just fascinating because I see the cards that you're you're basically, you know, you're pulling to attention, but I also know the ones the community's pulled to attention. So I just 
I remember that one uh, causing causing some good movements. And obviously, I'm not somebody who really moves in on on spoilers or or new sets these days. Probably to my detriment, but uh, I just wanted to holler out to hear kind of just you know the counterpoint to basically prevailing logic, thinking it's great. I mean, we kind of touched on that on Bootlegger's dash, but I was just curious as to the the why now. Uh, I see here you've also got a comment for Fable of the Mirror Breaker, and then we'll I think we'll move into the EDH decks. Yeah, just very quickly, I've been playing a lot of Standard, and one thing that's common is like whatever decks people are playing, they almost all have four Fable of the Mirror Breaker, and because that card is just bonkers. Like I, I, it didn't. It took me a little. Like I'd quit Magic, not quit. You know, like I'd taken a break from Magic because of Valus. I, I, I didn't like Val at all. I thought it was a very weak set, so I didn't play at all during it. And then when I came back to Neo, it's like I, I didn't really get back into it very quickly, and so. I wasn't too, I never paid much attention to what was going on in Standard, but having played against Fable of the Mirror Breaker, it's like, if I had been early on, I would have realized it's like, this card is just stupid. And this card is going to continue to be stupid for as long as it's legal. And it's kind of going to be the new Essica's Chariot of the format, where basically every deck is just going to play four. And if they're not playing red, they're going to seriously consider splashing red Mm. to add it. And so the card has actually come down a reasonable amount, which I'm somewhat surprised by. I don't really understand it, but people are going to realize like this is a card that's seeing play in, in Pioneer and Standard, and it's a staple for it in like every deck, and decks are literally splashing for it. And so if I'm not saying necessarily run out and buy them now, but if Standard or Pioneer or whatnot starts moving cards, this is a card that's going to move in a very big way. It's like it's like the Rangers. Um, oh, what's the Rangers class from the last set? Right, how it jumped up to like twelve dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the card from the, this is the card that's going to do that if standard starts being relevant again. So just like keep a yeah. close eye on Fable of the Mirror Breaker and what's happening with it, because I guarantee you, like the moment those formats start to become relevant again, this is the card that every single person is going to need as a four of. And then just the other card I want to briefly touch on is Haunted Ridge, which is just the um, red black dual land from AFR, and. The Storm Carved Coast and Haunted Ridge, have, we've already touched on a couple times, is doing well. Um, just as, like, obviously, they're, they're, they're the most played dual lands from the uh, in, in formats like Pioneer and Standard. And so they're they're just experiencing, like, you know, expected growth. But with Obnixilis being just, like, an absolute crazy card, and it's going to see play in Standard, Pioneer, and uh, Modern. Uh, Haunted Ridge is not going to be played in Modern, but it will be played in Standard and Pioneer. And so if it wasn't already on your radar, like, again, keep a close eye on it, because as people buy Obnixilis, they're also going to need the lands to cast it, and Haunted Ridge will just be an automatic four of in all those decks. And so it was it's kind of a rich-get-richer sort of scenario where people still need to cast the best card in their deck, and you'll want to keep an eye on it. Yeah. I mean... I know, I know specifically because um, uh, Father Ken has actually been talking a great deal about uh, Pioneer and its resurgence in our in our morning cast, and he he called out the the Fable of the Mirror Breaker a while ago, but uh, he also called out the the mana bases too with Haunted Ridge. He's he's quite keen on those, but the the Fable of the Mirror Breaker, from a personal perspective, obviously that I can't argue, goes against one of my fundamental core rules, which I've already mentioned, which is a a red rare in a standard set is I think that might be one of the most volatile and risky things that you can place money on just because it is so dependent on standard infatuation and then the moment that a new set comes out or the meta changes, the legs get swept out from underneath it. So that, for me at least, that that is one that I, I'm just... I, it scares the hell out of me, even though it might be a fantastic card. It just the, the longevity of of these these mono red cards that that are rares and you know they're very powerful in their 
specific meta, but they're so uh, vulnerable to to meta changes and the shakeups and improvements. And I don't know. I've, I've I just have extreme trepidation with with a card like the the Mirror Breaker. But you know that that that's me. I'm not trying to you know obviously bash on you too much. But uh, you you have here as, uh, no. as well the the EDH decks from uh, New Capenna, and I have to say these decks actually pulled my attention when I was looking at sales on TCG Player because they the um, the commander decks from Neon Kamigawa during the equivalent time period uh, didn't sell well at all the set itself sold way better however with nuka penna the commander products were actually selling better than most of the booster box iterations which i found out like really impressive so i I mean there's clearly demand and hype here but i think i think you're going to give a much better uh understanding as to why right well, I just kind of like I wanted to pull out or highlight the fact that a lot of the cards in the commander decks are very good. Not just the new cards, like the newly printed cards and the newly printed commanders, but also the reprints. It's just like the overall quality of the commander decks this time around is very, very, very high. And the themes were like actually like enjoyable, fun, playable, like things you want to like actually pull out and play. Whereas I found looking at stuff like I don't really want to play a pilot deck. I don't want to play some like red green token nonsense. Like looking at the Neo commander decks, they were. Um, they, they looked boring to me basically it's like i look at this and it's like i'm already bored next and that that was my impression whereas with the with these like with the snc commander decks it's like these were very i really like the product i really like again everything about them just from the ground up like the new commanders the new cards and even the reprints and i think it's like important to note that like like you're talking about sales well some of the cards like the commander specific cards are what are really um selling really well right now on tcg player and they don't have that much supply and so if we're talking about cards that will actually you can kind of flip in the short term um they're definitely worth watching because right now there just isn't that many of them out there and we're seeing like actual high demand because the power level is so high on a lot of them and um really it was white white ran away with the show because they just had so many good cards printed in the set like smugglers uh share i think everyone's aware of it's certainly the best card in the set uh like in the commander Mm -hmm. products but probably the sets overall um this is just a three-man enchantment that whenever an opponent plays two or more spells you draw a card or sorry whenever they draw two or more cards in a turn you draw a card and whenever they play two or more lands in a turn, you get a treasure token. And so what this means is every time someone plays a fetch land or whatnot, you get a treasure token. Every time they play a rampant growth or whatnot, you get a treasure token. But also, if they play like a brainstorm or something, or a preordain or a ponder, or any sort of like card selection, or card advantage, I should say, you're also drawing a card along with them because it's literally any player on anyone's turn drawing two or more cards you draw with them. And so like all this end of turn stuff that you want to do, like end of turn, cast your draw spell. Well, like I'm still drawing your card, even if it's not your turn, as long as you're drawing two or more cards that turn. And it's not quite as say powerful as a Ristic study, but it's like just very clearly a very powerful effect that it's like you can just throw this in any white deck and it's probably going to do good things and so it's no surprise that people are clamoring to buy it um my only concern is that when a card is this hyped there's probably not much meat on the bone in terms of like actual like financial prospects in terms of buying and selling Mm -hmm. them because everyone already knows it's the best card in the set and everyone wants to buy it and so like at 25 dollars or 30 dollars or whatever it is it's like well it's gonna how long did it take smothering tight to get to 40 dollars and it's not quite a fair comparison because that was a standard rare and this is a edh product so it's not an apples to apples comparison 
But again, it's like, are you going to make a bunch of money in the short term buying the most popular and hyped card in the uh, commander decks? The answer is probably not. Mm -hmm. The other thing too, just to keep in mind, uh, Smothering Tides also got a a what I would call what I what I would coin a subtle reprint, uh, which also slowed it down. Uh, but yeah, no, I totally I totally agree with you in that, that this is uh, it's not a fair comparison given the distribution model. Yep, and uh, I guess I just want to say it's like, but what I did want to say is like, uh, White has a bunch of other like powerful God, cards. Yeah. I think people are overlooking and. Um, one thing like unfortunate in the world of finance is timing is everything. And when, when we originally wrote the notes for this cast, the card I wanted to really hype up was Grand Crescendo. And this is a card that's a white, white instant. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's a white, white X instant. And it's, you make X one ones and your cards, your creatures are indestructible till end of turn. And this to me is like, I talked about this earlier. We even chatted about it. This is an amazing magic card because this is heroic intervention plus secure the waste. Plus it can also be like a fog where it's like you just create mm -hmm. a couple tokens, you block their attackers, they're indestructible. So you just negate the attack, right? It's like a four mana fog, not the best use case, but it is a use case. Um, it can also act like one of those comeuppance cards, right? Comeuppance is the four mana white in instant. That's the creatures deal damage to themselves instead of the player they're attacking, right? So you kill all attacking creatures. It's a really fun, awesome card. Well, with this, it's like you, you have your army, you have your little creatures, you know, your little hate bears, maybe a couple one ones. Someone attacks you, well, suddenly you make six one ones, your whole army is indestructible. You create a bunch of blocks, like double or triple blocks, you eat all their stuff, you lose nothing. It's just like a massive bloat, and they're like, what the heck happened? Mm -hmm. Um, there's just so many use cases for this card because the base mode is still like two mana heroic intervention, right? Like your cards are just your creatures are indestructible, so it stops those wrath of gods, it stops those blasphemous acts, right? All those things that would ruin your day as a token deck, and and while protecting like your Winota or protecting your feather or whatever your commander is, like it just and then it, it's also like a uh, it's, it's a secure the waste where it's like end of turn, I'm going to cast this for ten mana, create my eight creatures, untap, cast my Jetmere for my command zone. That's the Naya commander that gives your creatures like plus three plus plus three power, vigilance, trample, and double strike, right? So it's like I've gone from an empty board and I'm just killing everyone on the table or with like a crater hoof, that kind of stuff. And there's all these amazing use cases and it was like a $4 card. And I wanted to come here and say, it's like, this is going to be a $10, $15 card in no time. But sure enough, it already is. <laughs> so it's like it literally within 24 hours, it's gone. And that's kind of like, that's part of, I guess, the issue with these podcasts sometimes is uh, timing is everything. And if you're even a day or two late, like it just, it's too little, you know, it's a day late and a dollar short, yep. right? So I wish I had like some amazing spec I could pump, which is like, or promote, I should say, like, uh, but, you know, I, which would have been Grand Crescendo, but it's already, yeah. it's already gone. And it's like, oh, well, damn. It's funny you say that because one that you, you mentioned that I didn't know it existed until you mentioned it a couple days back. And because... I've actually decided to actually play EDH again. I built Captain Sisse, and it was uh, Benny Brax, the, zo the zoologist. And I looked at this card and I was like, this is amazing. This is so innocuous and perfect because it's innocuous. This is such passive. I was thinking of yeah. uh, Mangara, the diplomat, uh, was the last card that I saw that was, uh, I think, much better, but uh, of a similar vein in terms of Basically, this is a one-mana spell uh, because, I mean, if you're playing this right, it's got Convoke. And then it passively basically just makes you the Monarch if you created a token this turn. And that's all it does, and that's all it needs to do. And honestly, it's a chump blocker. And I, 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 maybe white is just terrible, but that, that is excellent in white. 
No, I think that card is deceptively useful. And just for anyone, like I'll just read it up real quick. It's a it's a three and a white for a three two, convoke. And it says at the end of each turn, if you made a token this turn, draw a card. And like you said, that sounds kind of innocuous, but in practice, there are so many cards that combo with that, like naturally cards that you're already playing that just make it almost like a free card that draws like two, three, sometimes four cards every circuit. And first of all, like Convoke means any sort of token deck, as long as you have a single white creature, which all citizens in this format are, and in your Prolings, well, you're casting this card for free. Or if you're casting it for one or two mana, honestly, not that Mm -hmm. big of a deal. But then in terms of creating a token every turn, a lot of people are first of all thinking of creature token, and it's not creature token, it's any token. So you know Smothering Tithe, the card all your white decks play? That's a token. That's a token. And remember Bootlegger Stash, a card we were talking about? You know what's a card that makes a treasure every turn? Uh, It's Bootlegger Stash, right? And beyond those, like even just uh, going back to old cards, like decks that uh, all these token decks are already playing, think about cards like Luminarch Ascension. Think about cards like Tenor mm-hmm. Drive. Think about cards like Verdant Force, right? These cards that it's like on each opponent's upkeep make a 1-1, or that lets you create tokens on anyone's turn. But Scoot Swarm is yes. a good example from a reprint from the set, not because you're playing a line on your turn, but if you're playing a fetch line, you can crack that fetch line on anyone's turn. And so when you crack that fetch line on another player's turn, it's like you can you get another, you draw another card, and Scoot Swarm is obviously is a card that's going to help with Convoke, reducing its cost by two or three or whatnot. You're paying, you're casting this for one mana, and you can see how there are just plenty of scenarios where this will be like a very cheap spell. It's drawing like a lot of cards, and that's a very powerful effect considering it's almost like a free card. And so I do agree that Benny Brax is like certainly a card to watch, and I do think it will be a very popular card going forward. Not a staple, not in every deck, because there are plenty of decks that can't play it or don't care about it or can't utilize it, but in the decks that are creating tokens, it's like this is just an auto-include staple and will be until, you know, until EDH dies as a format, I guess. But um, I guess I'll just quickly, before, like a couple other cards, like Red got some pretty cool ones in Reign of Riches and Seize the Spotlight. Reign of Riches is a 5-mana enchantment. You create two treasures, and the first card you cast off of a treasure each turn gains mm-hmm. Cascade. This red usually doesn't have good card advantage, but it's a very good treasure color. And uh, I like the fact that this is not only a card advantage engine, but also a mana engine because it casts kind of spells for free. And so, you know, it's it's five mana, draw a card and cast it for free every turn, more or less. Like that's kind of what it is, especially if you're playing a card like um, any sort of like a uh, treasure generating commander um, in general. But even if you're not, there are just so many cards where it's like this will just yeah. be activated enough of the time um so definitely a card to watch like if it starts draining starts selling like i could see this one kind of getting up there same thing with seize the spotlight this is a three mana sorcery um each opponent chooses <laughs> fame or fortune if they choose fame you threaten other creatures and if they choose fortune you draw a card and make a treasure Cute. and so obviously in a perfect world this would always draw three cards and make three treasures and just be a broken magic card like <laughs> that'd be you know vintage playable kind of thing um but in reality it's like uh, the threaten effect if they have no creatures it's like yeah go ahead threaten my nothing it's like haha so it's kind of going to be a little bit more meta specific where you need people on creature decks but the cool thing I like about this card is it's just you take a creature they control not target creature not a creature of their choice you take a creature they control so it's the creature of your choice and it works even if they have hexproof right like even if it's a hole breaker whore or whatnot um and so if your commander is a sacrifice outlet or you have a bunch of sacrifice outlets or you have some way to punish people for taking their best creatures, 
Now they're kind of forced to give you the treasure and the card, and that's where I think this card becomes very powerful. It doesn't go in every single red deck, but in the red decks that can use it because they have sacrifice outlets or things like that, it's a, like just an auto-include and always will be. So again, it's a card I'm watching kind of closely. Um, green, I felt like they just got nothing in this format at all, like from the commander decks, I should say. But it's like, if the cards become specs, it's only because they're all bulk. But even then, if a card goes from 50 cents to three bucks and you sell them direct, do you make any money on it? No, you still, you probably lose money still or you break even. It's like, so, but it's like, am I, am I buying these bulk to buy list? It's like, no, because they all look so bad and so generic and so anemic. That's like, I'm not even interested. Um, in terms of like, there, I guess there's one black card that kind of interests me. I, there's also one blue one. I'll, I may, I might touch it briefly, but the, the black one that kind of like is, um, Protection Racket. It's a three-mana enchantment, and it says that being able to keep you exile the top card of your library for each opponent, and they can either pay life equal to its casting cost, and you exile it, or if they refuse, you draw it. So um, this is kind of a card that, it's kind of like a Phyrexian Arena, same sort of vein, where it's a three-mana mana advantage, or card advantage engine, and it never draws lands, it never draws like Sol Rings or Vampiric Tutors or Demonic Tutors, because they just pay the one or two or zero life and exile it. But where this card is really good is if you just have a bunch of four, five, six, seven drops in your deck, people can't pay that life. Like they're just, no, go ahead, draw the cards. You're going to discard most of them anyway, because you can draw two or three cards a turn. You can't cast them. So it doesn't really matter. Like all that many cards just doesn't actually help you that mm -hmm. early on in the game. Um, but I do see this as like a potential like card advantage engine in a color that doesn't really need it, but it never hurts. The issue I have is like, New players, you never really know how they're going to value, um, value potential drawbacks. Yeah. And when I see potential... Well, but the problem with Protection Racket is a new player is going to sit there and read this and be like, so if I show them my uh, my Linvala or my, um, my uh, Lyra, they can pay five life and it gets exiled forever. And yes, like that's what happens. And it's like, okay, this is the worst card <laughs> ever printed. And I'm being slightly hyperbolic, but only slightly because I've seen that kind of general reaction to cards like this. And so I think personally, I think this card is very powerful. And I think in most black decks, like if you're just playing like a, a high curve black deck, this generates a ton of card advantage in a normal game of EDH. But I also know that new players might just never buy in a million years because it can exile quote, their good stuff, quote unquote, and that scares them. And so it's a card I'm watching, not a card I'm buying because I just don't know how the market will react to this type of effect. Um, but I do think it's the only kind of relevant black card in the set, and it's the others I just think so like, it, don't it's really Bob matter. for for EDH. Yeah, but you don't lose the life. Like that's the oh, your opponents lose. Yeah, it's kind of reverse Bob. Yeah, Bob is dark confident for anybody who who's unfamiliar. Sorry, just to, oh yeah, uh, just to, to voice <laughs> that uh, it's, it's it's a very old jund, yeah. uh modern staple where you reveal the top card of your library and you can put it into your hand if you pay life equal to its mana cost. And this this feels very reminiscent of that, just, um, again, spun on tilt for, for EDH. Um, and, and anytime yeah. you're... Yeah. It's also like, you don't lose yeah. the life, you don't, you don't, it's not a creature, so it can't die very easily. Like, I do think it's that a very powerful card. Again, you just never know how new players will react to it. Just It's because, not even, yeah. it's not even necessarily new players, too, because it, it's very, pol and I know people don't necessarily like to make EDH political, but it, it's a very political card because it's something that constantly reminds people that you're affecting the way they play the game. And it makes it very easy to point at it and say, hey, sure. this guy is, you know, forking with us. Like, stop it. 
Um, and, and yeah, and again, to yeah. your point of new players, yeah, it's very easy for all of a sudden the attention to be brought to you. Uh, anyways, you were you were saying apologies. Yeah, the the blue card that I kind of like from the set is extravagant replication. It's a six mana four blue blue enchantment. Then you keep make a copy of target non land. Um, permanent you control another non-land permanent you control sorry so it can't copy itself basically you can't just make like five copies of itself and then start copying the same creature five <laughs> times every turn and this card probably seems bad because it says another non-land permanent you control and so it doesn't copy lands it doesn't copy itself etc but in edh you almost always have an artifact that produces mana so it really doesn't say non-land like you're just going to copy an artifact and sure you, some games you might not have one and that sucks but you're almost always going to have an artifact to copy so it does actually copy lands quote unquote and later on the game just like having a bunch of mana and being able to infinitely copy like whatever your best threat is every turn i think is relevant and this is a card that's right now like the extended art is selling for like 250 or three bucks or whatever and i just think it's like the supply is low it's a powerful card it's a good kind of finisher six drop that's like good in long games and good in pretty much every blue deck more or less just so I see this as like a card that's probably going to go up in value. I don't know by how much, but it's like, I just think it's undervalued at its current price because this is a card that players will buy and like and include in their decks. Um, and it's certainly like in terms of just, so the fact that it's almost bulk, especially the extended arts, like I just think they're, it's a, it's one worth buying and it's one I've been buying. But um, just in general, I found the extended arts in this format, like there's, there's very low supply in a lot of them. Like another card I bought was master of ceremonies. Um, because I like, I think it's a fine card. That's a white card. That's like uh demir upkeep. Each opponent either gives you a one, one, a card or a treasure and they get one, two. So, you know, you, I found this card often draws three cards basically because players want their cards and they don't care if you draw three cards. So it's four mana every turn you draw three cards and that's very good. <laughs> but it's like, there's just not many like copies on TCG player found for a lot of them. And so it's like, they're all selling for like two or three or five bucks sometimes. And these are like powerful, reasonable cards. Like, are they like crazy overpowered? No, but it's like, I don't think they're $2 cards and there's basically no supply. So why are people selling them so cheap? And so even regardless of like what cards we've talked about tonight, I think people should look at just the extended arts and some of the EH cards in general, look at the supply, look at, look at what's selling because a lot of them have very few listings. Like they are just selling very rapidly and so the cards that our players are actually buying i think it's mostly players i don't think it's mostly speculators at this point but um it's like there's really not much supply out there to go around and so the cards that people are buying like they will get bought out pretty quickly and so the prices will go up yeah no it, it, it is truly fascinating i do think it's, it's an excellent segue into just the next overall point uh that you have here but um and I, i'm gonna steal it from you actually uh but that smuggler share is is it's very powerful, but it, it does seem overvalued. And I'm stealing that from you because I think you, you've done a really good job of just pointing out that there are a ton of really good cards in this set, which um, are not being paid proper attention to. I mean, personally, I think the, the Benny Brax is like, I love that card and I love my white ED8 card. And that's going to be one I'm going to buy 30 of. Like, I'm not even kidding. Um, because I think that in my opinion, it is probably one of the best, and it might be a little overpriced right now. In fact, it probably is, but um, the, the distribution of value. But even if it's overpriced right yeah. now, it won't be overpriced forever, and it will be a good buy at some point, because like you said, every single white token deck till mm -hmm. the end of time will be playing that card. And so when it does become a buy, it'll be a very good buy, because it, again, that organic player demand is there, 
in addition to kind of the competitive backing, like of the card is just like very good in the deck. And so that organic demand plus that competitive sort of like a power level is really, you know, it's, it's going to do great things for the price long term. Uh, I mean, I think that there is the potential for a lot of, of shakeup. I mean, there's, there's a lot of variability tied to it because it is selling well, um, but I don't think it's selling, as you've said, to speculators. So with that in mind, and I mean, obviously I could take a more analytical view to this, but I do think that that, that overall point is is definitely correct. And I, I like it's a great card, Smuggler's Share, it definitely is, but I do think there is too much consolidation and faith. And I honestly think desire to have it, have like the value be stored in one card for a product like this. And that I think it's 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 a really excellent product. I think the sales rate indicates that. But what are your your final thoughts on it? Oh, I I agree. It's a very high quality product. Like I said, I love the new command. I didn't really even get to talk about the new commanders because I don't think many of them are great specs at this point. But the new commanders are all very powerful, very exciting. Like not just the Beamtown bullies, but also stuff like Tivit and some of the other ones. Like they're just great. They're fantastic. I love them, and I think plenty of people will be excited to build decks around them. Not just the ones at the helm, but also kind of that's. The tertiary commanders are one of like the extra commanders. They're just as powerful and exciting. So, and between those and the new cards, again, there's no like knockout like the free spells from the Ikoria's where it's like these are just like going to have all the value. But the overall quality of the cards outside the green ones is very high. Like these are. So I think all these when you couple that with like a lot of the great reprints and all the decks, like you see cards like Avengers Endicar and Beastmaster Ascension, the Filter Lands, right? Like all these staples that like players want and that are valuable and will continue to retain their value um i think these are great kind of like long-term products like first of all if you just want to play with them and have fun with them they're fantastic but also if you're looking for like kind of a store value right you want to people still like to buy the uh, edh decks throw them in the closet and pull them out a year later like i think these will do very well just because the overall quality of the product is very 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 high much higher than say the strixhaven ones which i personally didn't like at all and i thought were pretty weak by comparison but these to me are way more exciting and so i think like i usually again i don't usually buy sealed i'm not the kind of person who buys a bunch of sealed commander decks and sticks them in my closet but if you wanted to i think this would be a perfectly like reasonable product to do so with see i i was that guy for quite some time so i and i still agree and it's nice to see kind of a return to form because I've, I've still got flashbacks to, to 2018 but uh is there anything any other comments or anything else you want to touch on before we we close out for the evening Oh, I feel like I've droned on long enough, so <laughs> probably ran a bit longer than we should have for the first one. So I, I know I'm, I'm content with what we talked about. I felt like we uh, hit on everything we wanted to, and yeah, yeah, it was no, a lot of fun. it definitely was. And I think, uh, I think we're gonna try and make this uh, at least a semi-regular thing, right, for about the next uh, three months or so, and then we're gonna reevaluate from there. But appreciate you for coming on. Yeah, glad to be here.